And the FBI also sent multiple undercover human spies to surveil and record people associated with our campaign. Look how they've hurt people. Their lives have been destroyed by scum. Okay, by scum. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon, KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio. Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the Globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com. But for one more day, I think this time, you got me, Nicole Sandler of The Nicole Sandler Show, based at NicoleSandler.com, doing double duty again today. Again, I hope, I think Brad and Desi will be back tomorrow. Fingers crossed. So another slow news day in America. Yeah, I'm being facetious, as you can tell. I don't remember the last time we had a slow news day. So there's a lot of stuff we're going to cover today. The USMCA, which yesterday Nancy Pelosi announced the Democrats made a deal with Donald Trump in the White House to pass the new trade bill to replace NAFTA. We'll find out what that's all about with Lori Wallach of Global Trade Watch. We'll also check in with our friend Dennis Campbell. He's an American expatriate living in Wales in the United Kingdom. And, well, the Brits go to the polls again tomorrow. So we'll find out what's happening there. But first, a quick look at what's going on here in the good old USA. The Senate Judiciary Committee Wednesday morning convened its own hearing on the Department of Justice Inspector General's report on the FBI's handling of the Russia probe. Almost immediately after the report's release, Attorney General Bill Barr did what he did with the Mueller report. He completely mischaracterized what's in it, essentially gaslighting America. Before we get to today's testimony, this quick report from Ken Delaney of NBC News, who actually explains what the report found. The first thing that it did was say that there was no political bias whatsoever that tainted this investigation. And it made clear what we already knew, which is that the surveillance of Trump campaign advisor Carter Page had nothing to do with the opening of the investigation, nor did that Christopher Steele dossier. And I'm glad you played that clip of William Barr talking about spying because the report went into a lot of detail on the FBI's use of confidential human sources. The FBI did run informants at members of the Trump campaign. And, and, and a layperson might say, well, that's spying, right? But the, but the report made clear they weren't asking these Trump aides about their political strategy or about their uh, actions regarding the election or Hillary Clinton. They were trying to get information about whether these people were coordinating with a foreign intelligence effort to interfere in the election by the Russians. And that was perfectly legitimate. And that's what Horowitz said in his report. Now, he revealed some pretty alarming abuses, I would suggest, by the FBI of the FISA process, the process to get warrants to spy on American citizens, which in a different context, Democrats would be very concerned about. And because of the political dynamics here, I think we're hearing less about that. And we shouldn't be because it's important. You know, the FBI made 17 critical errors in their representation to the FISA court uh, on the surveillance of Carter Page, who they never charged, by the way. And what's mm. interesting to me is they got FISA on Page. They didn't get it on Manafort. 
Papadopoulos and Flynn, who are now three convicted criminals. And I wonder what we would have seen had they done FISA surveillance on those people. So it's a mixed bag, but it absolutely does refute the things that Barr uh, and the president have been saying. So Bill Barr, the attorney general, sat for a propaganda-filled interview with Pete Williams, also of NBC News, who proved himself to be a simply awful interviewer. He didn't challenge a single one of Barr's false assertions, even his repeated lie that the FBI spied on the Trump campaign. I I think probably from a civil liberty standpoint, the greatest danger to our free system is that the incumbent government use the apparatus of the state, principally the law enforcement agencies and the intelligence agencies, uh, both to spy on political opponents, but also uh, to use them in a way that could affect the outcome of the election. As far as I'm aware, this is the first time in history that this has been done to a presidential campaign, the use of uh, these counterintelligence techniques against a presidential campaign. And we have to remember that in today's world, presidential campaigns are frequently in contact with foreign persons. And indeed, in most campaigns, there are signs of illegal foreign money coming in. And we don't automatically assume uh, that the campaigns are nefarious and traitors and acting in league with foreign powers. There has to be some basis before we use these very potent powers in our core First Amendment activity. Well, in the hearing Wednesday afternoon, Senator Mazie Hirono zeroed in on Barr's continued assertion that the FBI spied on the Trump campaign as she questioned the inspector general. Yesterday, Attorney General Barr went on TV to challenge the validity of the findings of your report and suggested that his own FBI agents may have acted in, quote, bad faith or with improper motives, and that it was premature to conclude otherwise. Uh, These insinuations are inconsistent with your report. In April 2019, Attorney General Barr told Congress, quote, I think spying did occur, end quote, when talking about the FBI's investigation of the Trump campaign's ties with the Russian government in the 2016 election. And yesterday, Attorney General Barr reiterated that the Trump campaign was clearly, I'm quoting him now, clearly spied upon. He claimed the FBI's investigative actions, which you discussed in your report, constitute spying. And the word spying carries, I would say, negative connotations, don't you think? You know, I mean, it sounds, as, it sounds like law enforcement and doing, is doing something they're not authorized to do, that and, they would spy on us. And that's why we use and only rely on the word that's in the law, which is surveillance. And yet we have the highest uh, uh, law enforcement person in our entire country using a word, not just once, but twice, using the word spying. So... Clearly, your report found that the FBI's investigation was for an authorized and with an adequate predicate, and you would not characterize that as spying. In fact, you would not use such a word in your report. We don't use that you did in not. our report. Senator Kamala Harris showed why she was an effective prosecutor when she pushed Inspector General Michael Horowitz on the need to open an investigation into Bill Barr himself. So your report makes clear that the FBI had a legitimate reason to investigate the Trump campaign. Is that correct? That's right. It was sufficient predication. And in addition, your office found no evidence that the FBI launched a politically motivated investigation. Is that correct? Uh, That's correct. And another key finding was that the FBI committed several errors in his applications and in their applications to surveil Carter Page. Or maybe more than several. And as the FBI Director Ray himself has acknowledged, your investigation found serious FBI misconduct that needs to be addressed. And Director Ray also said that the FBI fully accepts your investigation's findings. Is that correct? correct? On the other hand, Attorney General Barr has been highly critical of your findings. During the final stages of your investigation, he even embarked on his own personal investigation by meeting with foreign leaders in foreign lands, apparently in search of evidence that contradicts the fact that Russia interfered in the 2016 United States presidential election to benefit Trump. Clearly, Barr's investigation, which was launched to do the bidding of President Trump, has two objectives. One, to undermine the integrity of our intelligence community. The goal, to cast doubt on the finding that Russia interfered in the 2016 election in order to benefit the Trump campaign. And two, 
to intimidate the men and women of our intelligence community by suggesting that our national security professionals will face serious consequences if they investigate wrongdoing on the part of this president or his operatives. So General Horowitz, I appreciate your extensive work and the work that your office has devoted to this investigation. But in addition, you have the power and the duty to investigate misconduct committed by the Attorney General of the United States, who is doing the bidding of the President to undermine our intelligence community. And I trust you take that duty seriously. I, I do, and I'd just like to add that under the law, under the Inspector General Act, it carves out from my authority the ability to look at misconduct by department lawyers from the line lawyer all the way to the top and the Attorney General. But history has also shown us that the Inspector General can participate in an investigation of the Attorney General, and that in fact happened with, with General Gonzalez. Do you recall that? That happened, and it's worth noting, that happened after the Attorney General said our office was not going to get the case, that it was going to go to the Office of Professional Responsibility, and the choice for our office was whether to join that investigation or not. But that wasn't initiated through us. So that that's will, a big important point. The law has to change, Senator. And so it are you change. recommending the law? If I absolutely. Propose, if I propose legislation that absolutely. would change the law, would you support that? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, there's legislation Senator Lee has sponsored. Several members mm -hmm. have co-sponsored. The House has passed this unanimously. And you would support it? Absolutely, 100%. Okay. Since it's in the Republican-controlled Senate, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee is Lindsey Graham, and he gets to run the show. He used his time mostly to grandstand as expected. However, he did manage to speak a bit of truth to power. He called out the BS narrative that the Ukrainians were somehow responsible for messing with our 2016 elections. We know the Russians are messing in our elections. And it was the Russians, ladies and gentlemen, who stole the Democratic National Committee emails, Podesta's emails, and screwed around with Hillary Clinton. It wasn't the Ukrainians. It was the Russians. And they're coming after us again. So to be concerned that the Russians are messing with presidential campaigns was a legitimate concern. Well, the Trumps hosted a Hanukkah party at the White House Wednesday afternoon. Donald Trump used the occasion to sign a controversial executive order that will effectively interpret Judaism as a race or nationality instead of what it is, a religion. Why, you ask? Well, they say it would allow the administration to withhold federal funding from colleges and universities who fail to combat perceived anti-Semitism. So, the president, who continues to use anti-Semitic tropes in his public comments, is trying to combat anti-Semitism by designating American Jews as a different nationality? So that means American Jews like me will now be hyphenated Americans, as in not real Americans? You should be troubled by that. And even more troubling, who did he invite to speak at the occasion? Evangelical Pastor Robert Jeffress, who famously said, Jews are going to hell and the Holocaust was part of God's plan. Be afraid. Be very afraid. In case you hadn't heard, there was another mass shooting in America on Tuesday, this time in Jersey City. An hours-long standoff between armed suspects and law enforcement officers left six people dead, three innocent bystanders, two suspects, and one police officer. Detective Joseph Seals, a 15-year veteran of Jersey City's police department, who was ironically in charge of getting guns off the street. The shooting started at a cemetery at around 1230 in the afternoon, and gunfire could be heard for hours before authorities announced the suspects had been killed at a kosher supermarket. Although authorities are saying it's still unclear what led to the incident, the mayor of Jersey City says the gunman intentionally targeted a kosher market. And remember what I said about Donald Trump. It's all tied together. There was another shooting this weekend that you may not have heard about because only one person died. But in Houston, Police Sergeant Christopher Brewster was killed in the line of duty while responding to a domestic violence call. On Monday, standing outside of the medical examiner's office, Houston Police Chief Art Acevedo went off on Republican lawmakers for not taking action on gun violence. We've got to get the Violence Against Women's Act acted upon. They need to get in a room 
I don't want to hear about how much they support law enforcement. I don't want to hear how much, how, how much they care about lives and the sanctity of lives, yet we all know in law enforcement that one of the biggest reasons that the Senate and Mitch McConnell and John Cornyn and Ted Cruz and others are not getting into a room and having a conference committee with the House and getting the Violence Against Women's Act is because the NRA doesn't like the fact that we want to take firearms out of the hands of boyfriends that abuse their girlfriends. And who killed our sergeant? A boyfriend abusing his girlfriend. So you're either here for women and children and our daughters and our sisters and our aunts, or you're here for the NRA. So I don't want to see their little smug faces about how much they care about law enforcement when I'm burying a sergeant because they don't want to piss off the NRA. Make up your minds. Whose side are you on? Gun manufacturers, the gun lobby, or the children are getting gunned down in this country every single day. In our schools, in our theaters, in our colleges, on our streets, in our homes, in our businesses. Who are you coming to work for? And don't tell me, Senator, with all due respect, it's about the impeachment. Because you brag every day, you and Mitch McConnell, about getting judges confirmed. You brag about every piece of legislation you care about. Start caring about cops, children, and women, and everyday gun violence. And that will be the last thing I say this week, because the rest of this week is going to be about Christopher Brewster and his sacrifice, and the fact that his mom, his father, his wife, his sisters, his friends, and ultimately the community that he laid his down his life for will be putting him to rest before Christmas because of the cowardice of the political people that we have in office. We salute Chief Acevedo. On Tuesday, almost immediately after announcing articles of impeachment against the president, Nancy Pelosi returned to the stage to announce a deal with the administration on the new NAFTA, giving Donald Trump one of the biggest legislative victories of his term in office. Why? Is it a good deal? We'll get those answers and more from Lori Wallach of Global Trade Watch. That's coming up next. I'm Nicole Sandler, filling in today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate and thanks. It's Nicole Sandler back with you, filling in for Brad Friedman on the broadcast. Lori Wallach is the director and founder of Global Trade Watch, a division of Public Citizen. We've spoken so many times over the years about different trade deals, and I appreciate your time today. Um, yesterday, of course, Nancy Pelosi announced that the Democrats had reached a deal with the Trump administration on the USMCA, also known to many of us as NAFTA 2.0. You issued a statement uh, Lori, yesterday afternoon, that begins, thanks to congressional Democrats, unions and consumer groups fighting to remove big pharma giveaways and improve labor environmental terms, the redo of Trump's 2018 NAFTA 2.0 is better than the original NAFTA and could improve people's lives, although it still includes problematic, problematic terms. Um, overall, do you think this is a good deal? Well, I don't know you give anything associated with NAFTA the term good. Right. The the thing that we faced is NAFTA is in place, and it has been doing enormous damage for almost 26 years. Mm -hmm. And so every week, more jobs are being outsourced, more unions from the U.S. to Mexico, so companies can pay workers less. Workers in Mexico are having their unions busted and are now paid 40% less than manufacturing workers in China. Mm. Every month, a new investor state attack on a North American environmental or health or consumer laws filed. 
So with that ongoing damage, the mission, especially given who the heck is president, the mission was, is there some way to ameliorate, to reduce some of that ongoing damage? And the deal that was uh, ultimately created by the Democrats fighting with Trump for a year has some improvements. The investor state system is totally eliminated for Canada, which is huge. Most of the environmental attacks have been U.S. companies against Canada. Hmm. And most of the U.S. ISDS liability is Canadian investors in mining, et cetera, here. So that's a, that's a big improvement. And much reduced with Mexico. You, you couldn't do the cases that have summed up to $400 million of corporations getting paid off for attacks in our laws under the, under the new investor state replacement removal provisions. Okay, you, you know, can, can, hand, I, can I stop you there for one second? Because this is a really important point. You're, when you talk about investor state dispute settlement, ISDS, that's a term that many of our listeners might remember from the many hours we spent talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership that thankfully never went through. The ISDS, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't deal with this every day like you do, Lori, um, that was the provision that allows for some kind of international tribunal to decide cases and perhaps fine American taxpayers uh, for corporations? Okay, can you explain what, the, what that is? Do I have that totally wrong? Nope, you're okay. right. ISDS empowers multinational corporations to sue governments mm-hmm. before tribunals of three trade attorneys wow. and get unlimited sums awarded by these attorneys of taxpayer money for challenges against domestic environmental and health and zoning and other laws that they think violate the extraordinary new investor privileges they're granted in the agreement. So under NAFTA, there have been dozens of these cases. There have been almost $400 million paid out by North American Mm. taxpayers in attacks against energy policy, water and timber policies, toxic bans, it's outrageous. So on the one hand, where I was going is it's an upside that that outrageous regime largely got whacked out of NAFTA, and it sends a signal worldwide of the illegitimacy of that system, which a lot of developing countries are fighting against. It's really important that the U.S., is basically saying, no, we're not doing it either. That's great. Now, that, that's, that's a big deal. It's a very big deal. Now, the deal that Trump signed, his redone NAFTA, was worse than the original. Because uh-huh. he let Big Pharma rig it mm. with these new monopoly rights that would have locked in high medicine prices. So you had everyone and their mother against the thing Trump signed last year because it didn't fix NAFTA's original sin of job outsourcing. And the corporate rigging meant it would have had a new problem, locking in high medicine prices. So the Democrats to- were totally victorious in getting this new bad pharma giveaway crap taken out. So that's terrific. But that isn't fixing NAFTA. That's fixing outrageous corporate rigging that Trump added to NAFTA. <laughs> of course. But that would have been a terrible thing if that had gone forward. That right. would so, have handcuffed so, Congress so once from again, lowering medicine prices. So once again, Trump created a problem and then comes into solve it. <laughs> Although he didn't solve it, the Democrats did. Right, gotcha. He had to, be beaten, he right. had to basically politically be beaten to a pulp right. over a year of the Democrats okay. saying, no way, no how, unless and until you get rid of that. Gotcha. Now, so that's the, the ugly that got added got taken out. Okay. The ISDS that's been in, in the heart of TPP, as, as, that was in the heart of TPP and has been in NAFTA for these 26 years of damage, that has largely gotten fixed. But the big outstanding question, Nicole, is what's going to happen with NAFTA's sort of main known problem, which is race to the bottom job outsourcing and the mm-hmm. outsourcing of pollution. Because we've seen the U.S. government certify a million jobs lost to NAFTA already. That's just under a narrow program that undercounts maybe 10 to 1, the real loss. And we know every week companies are outsourcing jobs to Mexico to pay workers less. Because you know, workers in Mexico in high-tech, $100 million, super-duper brand-new plants of U.S. brand-name companies are being paid – two bucks an hour to do the job wow. 
that their counterparts in the U.S. get paid more an hour than those guys get paid a day to do the same hard work right. in the same identical kind of plant to sell at the same price back the Goodyear tires or the Oreo that Mondelez has paying workers less than $2 an hour to make versus oh their union bakery workers in Chicago and Philadelphia where they outsource. So the, the new NAFTA is certainly better than what Trump signed last year in that the unions and Democrats forced improvements to the labor standards and they forced improvements to the enforcement. But it's going to be something we're going to have to closely watch if it really makes a difference. I mean, the goal is to make sure that Mexican workers have the right to actually organize real unions, which Mm -hmm. they've been denied. There's a good annex in the new NAFTA, and some of the standards in the labor chapter have gotten much improved from, from the unions and the Democrats fighting about it. But the enforcement is going to be everything. And so we're going to have to watch like hawks to see if really it makes a difference. And if it doesn't, it is going to have to be renegotiated again. (laughs) Well, and hopefully with a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate and House uh, after 2020, we can do that. Um, Lori Wallach is with us from Public Citizen. She's our go-to expert on on trade policy. And so we're talking about the the Democrats announcing yesterday, the same day they announced articles of impeachment against Donald Trump, that they've reached a deal with the president. Do you, I I know that's, this is not kind of your, your ballywick, but do, do you think that was a smart move on their part or should this have been separate? I generally leave the politics gotcha. to other folks. <laughs> I understand. But the way, yeah, the way the way I basically see this situation is that um, Trump signed a deal last year that not only didn't fix NAFTA's outsourcing, that really betrayed his campaign promise, but would have made NAFTA worse. The Democrats fought for a year to try and take out these outrageous new big pharma giveaways and to strengthen the environmental and the labor standards, and they got to the place where they concluded they had gotten as much as they could and faced a decision of, all right, we can enact this thing that is an improvement on the original NAFTA, you know, just clearly on the ISDS whacking. That's right. A big, that's, that's a big, big deal. deal. Um, or we can leave the old NAFTA. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the politics of that is, you don't necessarily it's it's hard to deny the possibility you'd be improving people's lives by making those changes because you really hate Donald Trump. Right. Exactly. I I hear you. Catch 22. I mean, when you know, when I say I stay out of the politics that, you know, when I think about it, you know, sitting here in my office in Washington as sort of a recovering trade attorney and knowing the damage that this agreement has done to working people in Mexico and in the U.S. and in Canada, part of me says, I really despise Donald Trump, mm-hmm. and our nation is unsafe. Were he to be reelected or we do anything to, to give him credit for anything? Right. On the flip side, I sort of feel like, who am I to decide if on offer is the possibility to improve people's lives? And my political judgment should be put in front of whether or not we should make that policy improvement. That, that, to me, is sort of the moral quandary. And I think that um, the timing is peculiar, yes, for sure. Okay. Yeah. But the substance of the deal, um, I think, is better than the original NAFTA. And we are going to have to really watch to make sure that it actually stops some of NAFTA's ongoing damage. And if not, we're going to have to be back on the warpath, on this deal. I mean, Nicole, the thing is, this was about fixing an existing agreement that's doing damage. So it's right. not like the it's alternative not a new, is it, it goes away. Yeah. Like with TPP, it was like you either do an agreement that's bad or you have no bad agreement. Uh-huh. That's not the decision point we're at. We have a terrible agreement. And then the question is, can we do something that might lessen the harm? But I want to be clear. The deal that even after the Democrats knocked the starch out of the president and got all those improvements, the deal that's on offer is not the template for a future agreement from scratch. Right. This is not a 
transformational replacement. Right, which is what the, the White House is model. Which is what the White House is claiming, by the way. You say it in your statement, the new NAFTA is not the template for future agreements, which is directly contradicts the White House statement that said the exact opposite. Well, you know, if you were doing an agreement from scratch mm-hmm. and weren't just trying to stop ongoing damage, mm-hmm. In the era of climate crisis, you would not fail to put climate standards in it. Right. <laughs> the new NAFTA doesn't have climate standards, uh-huh. and it is any new agreement you're going to do from scratch, of course you have to take into consideration the climate crisis. Of course. The new agreement still has a lot of really bad stuff from NAFTA mm. that's been there for 26 years, that if I had a magic wand and I could make that the renegotiation, I would sure as heck get rid of, like the limits on food safety or some of the some of the other regulatory limits on the regulation in energy which you know is partially a climate issue or there are provisions on agreement that limit government's ability to regulate some of the big online giants none of that garbage should be in a good trade agreement and missing stuff like the the climate standards but real disciplines on currency cheating real rules against monopoly All that stuff is missing and some bad stuff still there. Yet, when you look at taking out ISDS, when you look at some of the other bad things that got taken out, the original NAFTA had a provision that required countries to export their natural resources. Wow. So if Canada decided to ban tar sands exports, they still owed the U.S. a proportion of that export. They'd have to keep production just for us. (laughs) That's outrageous. That's out. Yeah, oh, good. So they're real fixes, but... We'll have to watch to see if it makes a difference because it's not the transformational start from scratch agreement that focuses on people on the planet. It's still NAFTA. It's NAFTA that's been modified, hopefully, to reduce some of its damage. Right. One last question for you. It seems like now we're hearing some division uh, in labor. Richard Trumka came out and endorsed it, head of the AFL-CIO. Um, was that the tipping point for the Democrats? Say, okay, Trumka's on board, we're there. And, and why, why is he in favor of this? What, what protections are in there for workers? So everyone is waiting for the agreement that was signed yesterday, which is an agreement that's the amendments to the agreement from 2018. So mm-hmm. it, a second international agreement had to be signed to amend the old agreement. And everyone is waiting for that to be made public to look at the details, which it's possible that folks at the AFL-CIO have seen. Congress hasn't seen them. I haven't seen them. Okay. And a lot of the member unions of the AFL-CIO haven't yet seen them. I think that the reason that the, the AFL-CIO president um, endorsed is because, again, objectively, the new deal on offer is better than the old deal. Mm-hmm. And as someone who was in the hand-to-hand last phase of the negotiation, he knows more about what the final fixes on labor enforcement are. There are, though, and I just want to say this, there are member unions of the AFL-CIO's coalition, and there are member unions of the AFL-CIO who are against, have come out against, one of them at least has come out against, some others have not yet taken a position, And certainly folks in the environmental movement um, on the principle of it doesn't have climate, we're not for anything that doesn't have climate standards, have said that they oppose the New Deal. The folks in, there are unions that have supported it. I mean, there are other unions in the AFL-CIO that have supported it. So there, there are different ways people have judged the policy in the deal vis-a-vis their political position. And until we see the final text, we're not saying to members of Congress whether we think they should vote yes or no. We are just objectively saying this is a policy improvement, and we need to see how much of a policy improvement when we, on the labor enforcement when we see the text today. Gotcha. All right. Well, uh, there's a lot to uh, <laughs> look forward to, I suppose. And it's baby steps. As long as it's making things better, I, uh, then that's good. That's a good thing. So that's been that's been my sense because you know Nicole NAFTA's damage yeah has destroyed the lives and livelihoods of millions of workers in Mexico and the US and has harmed wage levels and, and 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 environmental quality in Canada and that has got to be fought and hopefully we've made some progress on it if not you know we know for sure 
we don't have that ideal agreement. So the fight goes on. This is the floor from which we're going to keep fighting for the truly progressive agreement that puts people on the planet first. Gotcha. And again, this is United States, Canada, Mexico, um, Mexico, Canada. Uh, it still doesn't uh, deal with the, the global, doesn't deal with the TPP or the North Atlantic or, or any of the other trade deals that hopefully Trump will stay away from anyway. And when we have a, a more reasonable person in the White House, um, hopefully we can make progress on other fronts. Um, but I guess, all right, I appreciate your, I so appreciate your input on this. Lori Wallach of Global Trade Watch, your expertise is so appreciated. Thank you so much. Thank you. And from your mouth to God's ears <laughs> that we have a new president yes. so we can get really progressive trade agreements in the future. Please. All right. Thanks again, Lori. Thank you. Well, they say that misery loves company. We're not the only nation with an insane leader but the U.K. can remedy their problem tomorrow. We'll check in on the eve of Election Day in Great Britain next. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the broadcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. I'm recalling and I don't want to shout. But while we were talking, I saw you nodding out. London calling, see, we ain't got no hide, except for that one with the yellowy eyes. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, in today for Brad and Desi. As if things aren't crazy enough over here in the United States, they're also crazy across the pond in the UK, where there is another election coming up. Can Boris Johnson retain his prime ministership or will Jeremy Corbyn pull out a win? For that and more, we turn to our friend Dennis Campbell, who's uh, an American expatriate living in the UK. For how long have you been over there now, Dennis? I've been in the UK for 16 years after unboxing day. And uh, in Europe for 21. Wow. <clears throat> wow. Well, I think a lot of us are going to want to join you over there, especially if um, uh, next uh, November. With, with Boris, you, you <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I know. We're going to have to find somewhere else to go. I, I've said for the longest time, I want to find an island somewhere. Now, it's going to have to be an island at a high elevation because of climate change and the sea level rising. But an island somewhere where we can just start our own nation and populate it with only the people we want <laughs> yeah it better better be a pretty uh high sea yeah, level beach that's what i said yeah <laughs> it's gonna have to be very mountainous uh, and uh you know maybe a big plateau at the top where we can all live i don't know, yeah, there you don't go. know. anyway so uh what's happening over there it's election time finally well it's election eve mm -hmm. i mean it's uh, seven o'clock five o'clock in the evening uh, here on Wednesday, and uh, everybody heads to the polls at 7 a.m. tomorrow morning. And uh, it's been interesting to watch the lead, the massive lead that Boris Johnson had at the start of this continue to dwindle. Mm. And, um, you know, I literally have been following The Guardian online, and uh, there's a piece that just came out, believe it or not, in Wales Online. And a whole bunch of students have uh, registered, more than 5 million of them. And uh, I think they're going to be the difference in this particular election because they tend to vote more leftist, more for labor. Um, I'm going to hold my nose and walk in and vote for labor because of the various uh, tactical voting packs that the parties that are part of the Remain coalition have formed so that there's a chance that, you know, things will indeed uh, go the way of remain but it's not looking that way it's looking as though it's more and more becoming a two-party system just like what you see in the united states because of the number of people who are claiming they're going to vote conservative or claiming they're going to vote for labor right so you say you vote for labor um obviously the labor candidate for prime minister is jeremy corbyn do you vote for the candidate are you voting for a prime minister are you voting for a party how does it work over there 
Well, this is very similar to what each of your congressional district elections are like. It's a system called first past the post. The person who gets the most votes wins that individual seat. Now, that's 425 congressional seats or 450. I can never remember what the number is. Here, it's 650. Oh, here, it's 435, but okay. 435 yeah. plus 100 senators, okay, right. 535. Yep. And uh, we, are, we are at 650 parliamentary constituency seats across England, uh, Northern Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. And we'll be going in and casting a vote for the person we want to be our local um, member of parliament. Okay. And so, then so you don't vote. The end of the night and they see who has a majority, and that's how they determine whether Boris or or Jeremy won as party leader. I see. So you don't vote for a prime minister. You don't vote for the country's leader. You vote for your local representative and whatever party gets the bulk of the local representatives wins the leadership of the country and, and their their party representative becomes prime minister? They're asked by the, 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 the winner of the election who, who holds a majority or just a slim majority but may have to go into coalition with somebody is asked by Her Majesty the Queen the day after the election around about five o'clock in the evening to form a government. There's a very formal ceremony, the drive from number 10 or wherever right up to there. And they'll say, you know, please, she'll say to them, please form a government and that'll become her government, whether it's Labour or Tory or whatever. And uh, off they go. But this has been just a comedy of errors. I mean, every time you turn around, we've got these uh, crazy things being done. This morning, for example, Boris Johnson made an ass of himself yet again. Yeah, Surprise, is that when he surprised. when he tried to hide in a freezer or something rather yes, than did. talk he to Good to Morning Britain? In a, in, in a milk refrigerator. <laughs> uh, he, you know, they were at 6.30 this morning. I think I tweeted out something. that, and, and then, you know, earlier he was being defended by Michael Gove, the man that destroyed the health system right. over the last several years, uh, for saying, for, for stealing a reporter's cell phone who was trying to show him the photo uh, of, a, of a young boy because the hospital in Leeds was so overcrowded, they basically placed him and his IV atop a pile of coats. Oy. That uh, You know, so it, these are these are what happened because, you know, you've you've been doing this now for so long in the States trying to find you know, a Democratic contender to, to Donald Trump and been watching the, the lunacy for, you know, nigh on 18 months. You know, here we have six weeks. Yeah. So it just it is absolutely an insane schedule. Right. And so the Guardian tells you everything that's happening from pretty much every major party. Right. But and, but 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 here, you know, we also have, uh, well, elections for Congress every two years, but presidential elections every four years. This is like your fourth big election in 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 a year or something crazy like that. So how does that work? Well, I mean, our, our, we, we passed a law, believe it or not, <clears throat> called the fixed term parliament law, which made terms five years. And that was in 2010. And uh, the Tories had just taken control with, uh, with the Liberal Democrats. Uh, they went into a coalition government. And then in 2015, with David Cameron, they, uh, the Tories actually won outright. The Liberal Democrats hemorrhaged 50-something seats uh, because they went back and, you know, on, on tuition fees and, and other promises they made. During right. And we should make clear that Liberal Democrats in the U.K., does not equate to liberal Democrats in the U.S. No, these are, this is a, a, an interesting centrist party that uh, it, it, it does look a, more and more each day like the Democratic Party. Hmm. Um, their, their biggest problem is that they try too hard to be the smartest kid in the room, and nobody likes the smartest kid in the classroom. And so they've pretty much hurt themselves, even though they've come back They've peeled off a few members of both Labour and the Tories who are dissatisfied with party leadership. But for two elections in a row, to finish what I was saying before, you know, they won in 2015. And then uh, the, the chairman of the party, the prime minister, David Cameron, resigned. They had an election amongst the Tories to determine a new party leader. And that's how we got Theresa May. And she decided to have what's called a snap election. So in 2015, 
2017, she went back to the polls thinking she was going to get a supermajority uh -oh. and then be able to pretty much do whatever she wanted around Brexit or any of the other things and basically tell all the other parties to go pound sand. Problem is she lost a number of seats and had to go into coalition with the Democratic Unionist Party in Northern Ireland, which are not terribly democratic and not terribly union friendly. I mean, they are indeed a very, very hard right party that put all sorts of demands and, and, and held Theresa May up for about a billion pounds, which is, you know, $1.6 billion. So it was a nasty, nasty situation. And then Theresa May was forced to resign mm -hmm. after she had been finally elected. And then we went through the same rigmarole again just yeah. a few months ago. Yes. And Boris Johnson was named prime minister <laughs> uh. because he became the new party leader. So two times in a row, an unelected by the public uh, person was placed in charge of the Conservative Party, and that just caused all kinds of problems. Wow. So here we are again, and... Um, yeah. uh, he seems to think he's going to get his majority this time. It's not working out very well for him. Right. Well, so Boris Johnson is not a very popular figure. Any, I mean, certainly not here, but not there either. He is... Um, divisive. Uh, now, he was a, a Trump ally, but when Trump was over there last week for the, the NATO meetings, um, there was some friction that they weren't even going to meet. And then Boris Johnson was in that little, uh, <laughs> the little snarky gathering with Macron and uh, Trudeau, uh, sort of laughing at Trump. Was there any the fallout cool from there? Yeah, the cool kids, right? <laughs> you know, uh, the, the, the whole problem that we have with Boris right now is that if he's seen standing next to Donald Trump, it will absolutely destroy his chances of winning and becoming prime minister. Trump is the one who is so completely toxic there as well as here. And, uh, you know, his three visits as president have not gone well, I mean, including the birth of the baby balloon. The Trump balloon with his with his cell phone. Uh, the first time he came, and all the time he spent in Scotland with people, you know, protesting there as well. Uh, then when he came to visit the royals on his royal visit, he was a complete buffoon, and he flew from helicopter to helicopter to helicopter. He never touched ground, and now he's been back for the for the NATO summit, and none of them have gone well for him. None of them. They've been a complete embarrassment. But to hear him talk like he did last night in wherever he was, Ohio or someplace or Pennsylvania, uh, you know, the world loves us. We're respected, you know. And the fact is, you're not respected. He's not respected. People think he's a maniac. They think he's a lunatic, but they're scared to death of him. Well, as they should be, just like we, you know, we've got Donald Trump now. It, so so over there, obviously, Trump is not very popular. Um, is, so is that why uh, Johnson is m maybe trying to distance himself or? or oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's a buffoon, but he's politically savvy. Right. I mean, he, he, he knows for certain that being seen cozying up to, you know, on a, they didn't even have an, an official bilateral. Which is, right. I mean, that's just not done. A bilateral meeting, you know, where the, the heads of state, I mean, if you're coming to visit in, in a NATO nation, I mean, when, when, when it was in Wales, uh, you know, uh, President uh, Obama sat down with David Cameron sure. for a working bilateral meeting because that's what you do. But now nobody wants to be seen with him. Nobody wants <laughs> to be a part of him. And uh, it, it's becoming a real problem. I mean, I wouldn't want to be Zelensky right now, no. the, the head of, of, of uh, Ukraine. It, it just is an untenable situation because you're not an ally unless you kiss his ass and pony up money. Right. Right. No, it, it's horrible. And now we, there was a story that just broke the other day that Trump or his administration was in talks with someone over there about, you know, pushing their agenda to privatize. Uh, the the NHS. Do you know about yeah. that? Yeah, I mean the Tories have neglected it for nine years, uh -huh. and it's uh, it's in it's in bad shape. I mean, there's an advert that came out uh, just the other day of a of a young doctor 
who works with uh, oncology patients and and she basically took the prime minister to task and said you know what you have created for these poor people is is an absolutely untenable situation there's you know the the lines and the waits now for emergency a and e care are ridiculous i already told you about the the little boy you know on a pile of coats with his iv bag and pneumonia uh you know they can't get enough beds and all you ever hear from the Tories, we've put more money, X billion pounds, into the NHS than anybody else. Well, you haven't. It's been nine years under your watch, and what the hell are you doing? And they're not doing anything. They figure if they starve the beast, they'll be able to kill it, sell it for parts, and then start to make money off it. And this is all about drug prices, just as it is there. Wow. They're going to they're gonna try, you know, Big Pharma sees a huge market of 60, 70 million people here. And a way to raise prices and do it in such a way that the government will then be forced to pass on the, the, the cost of those to the, the general public. And all of a sudden, there goes your free NHS. Right. Now, as it stands now, um, if you have to get a prescription filled, what does it cost you? Nothing. Ugh. I'm so jealous. Um, <laughs> uh, so and, and, hopefully and that I, stays. I, I have enough drugs on a monthly basis that would bankrupt me if I still lived in the States. Yeah, I mean, it's, I hear you. It's, it's insanity. And, and, you know, there's, there's, you know, pretty much everything that you get, but that you get there, you can get here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they've got nice distribution systems in place now and, you know, ways for people to get their medication. But the government, I know you're going to find this funny, actually negotiates. Oh, my. <laughs> what says, a concept. Here's what the price is going to be. And uh, drug companies go, okay, it's only in the USA where nobody gives a that they're able to do whatever they want to do mm -hmm. and charge whatever they want to charge. Well, they, we, we do care, <laughs> just so you know. We just well, have, I know you we, care, but right. the, the people that are in charge don't care. Right. No, the, the, well, the people at the uh, in, and Big Pharma, all they care about are their profits. The people in the big insurance companies, all they care about are their profits. So thankfully, we've got, you know, people like Bernie Sanders running for president who want to change all that. So, uh, you know, we'll see. Bernie Sanders is hanging in there. So that's good news for me. Now, over there. So if yeah. if the Tories win, that would mean Boris Johnson retains the prime ministership, stays at 10 Downing Street and Brexit wow. happens. And if Jeremy Corbyn well, wins, is, they, they the does big it. Issue. He, he needs to get 22 more seats to have a complete majority. That will then vote with him no matter what. And yes, then at that instance, Brexit happens. But I've seen estimates between 367 and as low as 311 seats. I honestly feel that this is this election is going to be as much as a shock to the Tories as the election of 2015 was to Labour, because the Tories had been in control for five years. Everybody, every poll predicted that the Tories were going to get absolutely massacred. And then came at uh, 10 o'clock in the evening on election day, the exit polls, mm. which showed it 180 degrees in the other direction. And indeed, Labour took control. And, uh, you know, so then after the Brexit referendum and Cameron's resignation and Theresa May took over, she wanted to have a full majority. She lost even more seats. Right. I think Boris is going to lose even more seats. Um, and, you know, over five million people students, young people have registered to vote in the elections over the last six weeks. That is truly an astonishing number. It's the biggest turnout ever, the biggest number ever. And everybody has been talking since day one of the campaign about tactical voting, you know, doing what I have to do. The, the, for example, three parties, the Greens, Plaid Cymru here in Wales, and the Liberal Democrats have formed a coalition a Remain coalition that basically says, we're going to vote for the candidate, whoever it is, or, that will throw the Tory that is in that seat out. Wow. Now, here where I live in the Vale of Glamorgan, Alan Cairns, he used to be the Welsh secretary. He's been involved in an absolutely ridiculous scenario where his Minion, a guy by the name of Ross England. I stood against Ross England in 2016 for mm -hmm. the Welsh government. I remember, right? Um, yeah, and he has um, he has turned around apparently and interfered in the conduct of a rape case in court. Mm. 
and yeah, it's it's a very one of those very big Me Too moments, and has really infuriated a lot of people. This happened in the early part of November, and it you know forced Cairns to resign as the Welsh minister. So he just became a a backbencher like everybody else and lost his ministerial post. And he should have stood down and said, I am not going to be a candidate in the election, but he didn't. Mm -hmm. And the fact that there's no outrage over that and the fact that the last time we had an election in 2017, he only won by 2,000 votes, 2,200 votes. I think he's in grave danger. Another cabinet minister, Dominic Raab, is in grave danger. He's been written about all week. And even the prime minister himself could face some difficulties trying to hold on to his seat. So election night coverage on Thursday into Friday morning and, uh, you know, around about the time you folks get up in the morning on Friday, we'll have a pretty good idea of where we're headed. By the way, we use paper ballots here. Yeah, smart. Little piece of paper. Yeah. You mark on it Mm -hmm. and you fold it up (laughs) and it goes into a box and then it goes down to a central tabulation area where hundreds of people physically count the ballots. It's the first time in my life I ever felt in 2010 that my ballot had been counted. Wow. What a concept. Good idea. Good idea. So, Dennis Campbell, then let's do this. We'll make a date. You and I will talk again Friday morning, my time. By then, you should have a pretty good idea of what the results are over there, yes? Yeah, yeah. Friday morning, your time, yeah. We usually usually will know by about 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning, our time, which is uh, about 3 o'clock in the morning, your time. Ah. But um, by the time it rolls around to your time, yeah, we can can figure this out and uh, see who won, who lost. I mean, I think Labor's going to pull a little bit of a surprise to a lot of people. And he may end up with a, with, with a slight majority, but not enough to govern with, and we'll have what's known as a home parliament. And then what happens? Another election? No. I mean, they've, they've got to find a way to govern, and they won't get Brexit done, which is good for those of us that don't want to see it happen. They'll have to go to a referendum, a second referendum, and it will fail because it's been... They were, we were sold what's called a dog's dinner, uh, last time. And we we did not like who we ended up with. And we did not like the way this thing was conducted because it was built on a foundation of lies. Literally the night that they started counting the votes at 10 o'clock on the Brexit referendum, the Tories were backtracking and saying, well, no, there's no way we're going to add 350 million pounds a week to the NHS, which was on the side of their battle bus. For right. The entire- exactly. Hey, yeah. You know, so and they have they have been called out early this time on all their lies. And I think people are generally fed up with Boris and they're fed up with Tory lies. And we're in one of those swings. So hopefully that will lead to a good result, which should bode well for you folks next year. I hope so. So one last question. What would it take for Jeremy Corbyn to rise to prime minister? They have to win a lot of seats. A lot of seats. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, right now it's showing that uh, that on the last poll I saw, which was just last night, the Conservatives are at forty-two percent, Labour's at thirty-seven percent. That's a fairly narrow difference. Mm-hmm. And then all those part- parties that went into coalition together or into uh, tactical voting packs have just fallen off the table. Wow. So. Yeah, the Lib Dems will probably end up with 20 seats, which is close to what they have now. Um, SNP will have about 50 seats, which is the Scottish National Party, which is what they have now. Plaid will have one or two seats. The Brexit Party will be destroyed, thank goodness. And, uh, you know, that's it. We've managed to, through all this, narrow the, the field to the point where it's either Labour or it's Tory. Problem is, is that Corbyn is, is a disaster. And, but uh, is is he? And, I, I you know look. I'm I'm obviously a long ways away, and I'm not privy to the day in and day out. But in my mind, Jeremy Corbyn is is a no brainer compared to Boris Johnson. He's you know how we always say the lesser of two evils. Yeah. He's definitely the lesser of these two evils. Gotcha. 
Okay. Well, <laughs> good luck. Good luck. We'll be watching from over here. I'll talk to you uh, the day after tomorrow, and uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll figure, we'll find out what happened. It's, I, uh, it's, it's still on. I mean, Boris Johnson has, it just was in an interview with Pink News, and it still refused to apologize for referring to gay men as tank-topped bum boys. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it's, it's on, it's, and it's just, it's been bloody stool for him all day, so... Talk to you Friday. <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Dennis Campbell. Talk to you Friday. And that's a wrap for this edition of the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, inviting you to check out my regular show. Just visit NicoleSandler.com and listen for yourself anytime. Until next time, I join Brad Friedman in wishing us all good luck, world. Good luck, world.